Gus Kapler is such a sweet guy. He's warm and funny. He laughs a lot. And he's very generous with his time and his spirit. If you met him in line at the grocery store or the post office, you'd never guess that he spent a year in Vietnam performing the most unimaginable surgeries on young men with the most unspeakable injuries. His book, Welcome Home from Vietnam, Finally, chronicles his experience, revealing and exploring along the way the anger he lives with to this day. Stick around. From the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, founders of The Wall, this is Echoes of the Vietnam War. I'm your host, Michael Crone, bringing you stories of service, sacrifice, and healing from people who still feel the impact of that conflict more than 50 years later. This is episode 59, Gus Kapler is still angry. This episode contains vivid descriptions of battlefield injuries. It might not be appropriate for every listener. Gus Kapler arrived in Vietnam in September of 1970, beginning a year-long tour as a trauma surgeon at the 85th Evacuation Hospital in Phu Bai, where he witnessed the devastating effects of war on the bodies, minds, and souls of hundreds of very young men. Many years would pass before he finally understood the effect the Vietnam War had on him personally. His book, Welcome Home from Vietnam, Finally, explores PTSD, the effects of Agent Orange, and what is still wrong with the way we welcome our fighting men and women home from war. Gus joined me via Zoom from his home in Amsterdam, New York. I uh, grew up on, on Long Island, New York. Graduated from Port Jefferson High School in 1957. Did you already know that med school was where you were headed? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I went to Cornell because my dad went there. And he was a hell of an athlete. He was captain of soccer, captain of, uh, of baseball. Uh, I joined a jock house. Uh, and the thing is, I... I made the freshman basketball team and I said, and basically because I wanted to and secondly, because it would make him proud, but I didn't know it, but I had dyslexia and it took me forever to read and to write and what have you. And I realized I couldn't do a college sport and study at the same time. The hardest phone call I ever made was calling my dad saying, nah, I can't do both. I can't study, make it to medical school and uh, do what I should be doing on the basketball team. And he understood. He, he, was, he was very good about that. Uh, major in chemistry because it was all memory. I didn't know I had dyslexia. I was accepted at Cornell Medical School in New York City, uh, which is New York Hospital on 68th Street and uh, York Avenue. Uh, and did pretty well there, had to study hard, but, but did pretty well. And <clears throat> wanted to be a surgeon. And they tried to encourage me to stay at New York Hospital, which was very much of a white tower. 
and you didn't get to operate for a couple of years. But friends of mine had gone to the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, and they operated the first day. The so, first day. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So I went to the Medical College of Virginia, and I did operate the first day. I did burr holes with a drill on a poor gentleman in, in the emergency room who had a subdural hematoma. Uh, what, what, year, what year did you get to uh, Medical College of Virginia? 1965. That's in Richmond. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, because I know uh, Hal Kushner also went to that school. I wonder if you guys were there around the same time. I, I, we were there about the same time. Uh, I knew of him and I knew his story. Yes. And <clears throat> when I started my internship, we were all drafted. And we were first lieutenants. Uh, you either went to Vietnam right after your internship or you were lucky enough to get a deferment so that uh, you could finish your surgery training because they needed fully training surgeons. So I said, simple math, 65, 70, Vietnam be all over with. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> so after my residency, and I left my wife and my two children, my four-year-old daughter and my six-month-old son. And with a month of, within a month of finishing my residency, we're at Fort Sam Houston going through basic training, which was really a joke. Uh, and then by September 7th, I landed in Vietnam. And I was of eight, 19, September 7th of 1970? And 1970, yes. Yeah. So when you basic training was a joke, what do you mean? Well, they, <laughs> they taught us how to march. We all were doctors, dentists, and veterinarians and nurses. Okay. And, uh, and they soldiers. Taught us, they, they told us how to brush our teeth. And they told us about VD. And they taught us how to march. Uh, they told us about the chain of command. They tried to teach us how to use a compass, which I knew how to do anyway. And we got bored. So we, we bribed one of the enlisted men to get some beer out to the point of where we're supposed to go to. And then we found out that two cans of beer fit perfectly in the canteen cup. That's in that in the in the canteen you wear on the on the web belt. Uh, so by the time we got to where we were supposed to do, most of us got there, but we're a little bit inebriated. And they did. What are they going to do? They're going to send me to Vietnam. I said, I'm, I was going anyway. You know, right, right. And that's the attitude. That's sort of the attitude I I took. It was a a survival attitude. And actually, before I joined the service. Uh, my wife and I and my sister and her husband went to see the movie mash with Donald Sutherland. And he is my absolute hero. I would, I, I would kiss his feet if he walked in the room. And uh, because Donald Sutherland, uh, Donald Sutherland, because he was Hawkeye wow. in the movie mash. So so Hawkeye is your hero. Well, Donald Sutherland. OK, played Hawkeye. Right, right. Why, whatever. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to act just like that. I'll get through it and what have you. And I acted just like that and got through it. Let me ask you, uh, was there any sort of weapons training at your basic? 
The weapons training was the most dangerous part of my two-year military experience. It was more dangerous than Vietnam because you had people totally unfamiliar with weapons waving around loaded chambered 45s and M14s without any idea of what was going on. Uh, they trained us with the M14, which I, I hunted a lot, so I knew all about the weapons. But the thing is, by then they were using the M16. So, and we were not supposed to uh, have weapons, physicians, in Vietnam. Uh, we just not were supposed to have them. But as the casualties would come in the emergency room, we grabbed the weapons and we were armed to the teeth. Hmm. So uh, you said September of 70, you arrive in Vietnam. S September 7th, yeah. And and what are your first impressions? Uh, I said, oh, my God, I'm here. <laughs> and like most people say, it's, it's quite hot. I was an officer, so I went to Benoit and I stayed in a billet with another major, but he was going home. You know, it was like a harsh. Why, why did I put two people like that together? One poor guy's coming, the other guy's going home. And in the middle of the night, there was small arms fire, and I, I stood up to see what was going on. He was on the floor. That was my first lesson of what yeah. to do in the, in the combat zone. So you said that... Uh... You you had assumed, you know, years earlier before your internship that the conflict in Vietnam would be over uh, by then. But of course, what happened in the meantime was the Tet Offensive, um, uh, the beginning of the the turning of the tide of American sentiment about the war. All of that happened while you were doing your internship. So you landed in Vietnam. You landed in a very di different Vietnam than the one well, you had it, considered. It, Yes, there, there, there are two Vietnams, exactly. It was two different wars. If you talk to the veterans before Tet, they were dedicated, they were regimented, uh, they had purpose, and after Tet, the fabric fell apart. And uh, a, a, a friend of mine I met at going to meetings uh, where I was trying to study post-traumatic stress and uh, suicide, is a psychiatrist. His name is Norman Camp. He was a psychiatrist in Da Nang, which was a half hour by chopper below us in Vietnam. And he wrote a very distinctive uh, text on the disintegration of, of the military during that time. And he witnessed it uh, because he saw the he saw it happen. Uh <coughs> Now, you couldn't blame these kids, <laughs> you know? Our country's given up. Why are we here? And why why do we have to kill people? And what happens with basic training is that you take young people, then it was men, young men, 18, 19, 20, 21, and they have lived under the moral code of peace their whole life. They might have gotten to some bar fights and played football and what have you, but their life was peace. That was their moral code. They're trained by the military to kill without hesitation. All of a sudden, they're existing 
under the moral code of war. And I describe it as being in a moral limbo. These young people, even now, these young people are never totally within one moral situation. It's a blend and they, they, they conflict. And when you're not in a firefight, you remember the killing you've done. And all of a sudden you say, should I have done that? You know, is it right to kill another human being? People ask me, well, how'd you, how'd you exist seeing all that, all the destruction and, 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 and blood and guts. And how did you cut arms and legs off and, uh, have people die or bleed to death in the operating? How'd you live with that? We sort of just ignored it and we never discussed it, but we partied a lot. Okay. We drank a lot and there was some pot involved, but it's only the past year and a half. I realized we weren't partying. We were self-medicating. Mm-hmm. And and that's the truth, and that's what the the, the uh, soldiers did in Vietnam. It's it was pushed into our subconscious. I never ever sat and said, <clears throat> except for one page, except for a couple patients that I'll describe. I never ever sat and said, "Oh my God, this is horrible. War is horrible. Uh, uh, those wounds are horrible. I feel bad for that kid." We never did that. We just did our jobs, took care of them. We couldn't allow ourselves to vocalize that. It would have been yeah. self-destructive. Okay? Sure. So pushing our subconscious, but it was still there, maybe not in our conscious, but we were drinking and partying to keep it down there. So before we get a little bit more into doing the work and what that all, what all that entails, I want to go back to something you said earlier about uh, Hawkeye Pierce being sort of your your template yes. for how to get through it. Can you talk a little bit more about what attributes you took from him, whether it was your attitude or your appearance? Like in what ways did that did that manifest itself? My appearance. <laughs> I I would walk around. I never wore very few times that I ever wore my wear my fatigues in Vietnam. Okay. I wore tie-dye Bermudas and often a tie-dye muscle shirt. I wore a chain with a teardrop, a broken teardrop peace sign. And once the nurses in the recovery room ICU realized you were a good surgeon, they made you love beads. So I wore love beads. And we just wore that, you know, we never, we got by by uh, being, um, I can't think of the word, disingenuous of the, of, the, of the military discipline. No one saluted. No one wore a hat. We all were on the first name basis. We drank too much. Uh, we busted chops. The, 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 the CO never came to the operating room, never bothered as long as we did a good job, which we did, uh, we we acted instead of acting as a thirty-year-old. He became nineteen or twenty again, and so you sort of develop your own lifestyle. 
Mm. And and you and you develop a love for the people you're working with. I'm asked, well, didn't you learn a lot of surgery over there? No, I didn't. I knew most I knew the surgery before I got there. The the big lesson was a difference between damage from a high velocity weapon than it parts between four thousand and six thousand horsepower of energy versus the uh, a weapon with a you know, slower velocity, like a thirty-eight or twenty-two. It's a big difference there. But uh, otherwise, probably seventy-five percent of my learning experience was social. Uh, learning to appreciate the people I worked with, learning to get along with all these different personalities, learning that I I I I'm not that important. Okay, especially I'm not that important because I could be dead tomorrow, right? <laughs> and 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 learning that I really depend on the people who are supporting me, like the medics who are scrubbing, the medics who are changing the linens. Uh, uh, we I learned the power of women. The the nurses, every nurse in Vietnam volunteered to go. Every one of them. And they were all 21, 22. They finished their training, and, and within six months, they were in Vietnam. And you interviewed one of those nurses, Carol, and her husband, Mike. And Mike was an OJT anesthesiologist with us at the 85th. But they sort of assumed this role, not, not an official military role, but they assume this role of of uh, having the authority of your mother. Like if you started acting out or being a jerk, they tell you, right? Or they say, you know, they call you from the ICU and they say, wouldn't say, maybe you should come over here. They say, get your ass over here, you know? And they were our interns and residents. Uh, that that was my biggest lesson, you know, and and to treat everybody in in our social hierarchy the same because they all deserve to be treated the same. You paint uh, an interesting picture, right, with the love beads, which I guess were sort of a a good housekeeping seal of approval from the nursing staff. <laughs> the the Bermuda shorts, the um, and the drinking and the partying. But I mean, let's be honest, you did an awful lot of hard work uh while you were there i wonder if, if you could if you made it if you made it alive to our hospital you had a 96 percent chance of survival we were good can you talk about sort of the the triage process i mean in a in a combat zone you have to make some really hard decisions and you have to make them fast what was your how did you guys okay. uh, or, organize your thoughts around triage and prioritization well, you'd get a notice, you'd hear chatter on the, on the radio that something was going on, and then you get a notice from the dust-off pilot, and they give you three numbers. One is the KIA you have on board, the others are seriously injured, the others are walking wounded. So you had an idea, you know, if they were like two KIAs and five walking wounded, you knew that you weren't going to have a major rush for, for blood and, and treatment. But if you had an idea there were like two or three seriously injured coming in on a couple aircraft plus walking wounded, 
then you had to think about uh, resources. How many operating rooms did you have? How many anesthesiologists were available? How many surgeons were available? How much blood did you have? How much IV fluids, antibiotics, what have you? How much space did we have? So before all this came to fruition and people started coming in, when we had when we developed an 18-hour backlog, meaning that we'd have to operate for 18 hours to, to take care of all those that we accepted as patients, we'd have those choppers overfly and go to Da Nang because that was a bigger hospital. So as the patients come in, they would land on a helipad, and often you could tell how seriously the patients were wounded by how close the dust-off pilot landed to, near the hospital. Meaning if, if they were seriously wounded, he would, he would land closer to the door? And closer to the door, exactly. Wow, okay. And, and uh, so the patients would come in, and you could tell right away those in shock, those agonal, those who were going to die. But the, the major gut-wrenching decision was who do you not take care of? And how could you say you're not going to take care of someone? Well, there was a classification of patients called expectant. They had so much injury. They were so close to death. They would require so much resource of blood and time, uh, effort, that if they, if that one patient were taken to the operating room, treated, resuscitated, taken to the operating room, you could probably take care of maybe three or four seriously wounded. All right. So that patient was put in a corner behind a screen, given a lot of morphine, had a nurse sit with him, and was allowed to die with dignity. Uh, and that patient was sacrificed to allow the bulk of the other patients to be treated in a timely, in a timely fashion. And then there were a group of patients that we knew had to go to the operating room right away. They were basically on, a, on, the, basis of, on the basis of hemorrhage. And then those patients who maybe lost a foot or lost a hand or had some minor frag wounds here or there, they could wait two, three, four, five hours to be taken care of. So that's called triage. But the, 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 diff, the difficult part was being the one, and that was my role for about eight months. I was chief of surgery, and I would uh, uh, make those decisions. Correct me if I'm wrong, but none of your surgery training prepared you for that moment where you have to decide that someone is expectant. No, no. But you didn't think about it again. It, 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 it was just something that had to be done. Mm. And you didn't, if you allowed yourself to dwell on it, this is, this is how my post-traumatic stress developed. I buried these things. Okay, 
but they were still active in my subconscious. My limbic system was still firing. Yeah. And, and the, what I realized when I got home, I started telling stories. And the way I handled my post-traumatic stress was to story tell. And that's a common way of doing it. And my wife would cook this beautiful spaghetti dinner and we'd have all these people over we just met. And they would say, you know, we love your spaghetti dinner, but if we have to watch those bloody slides again, we're not coming over. Right? But what I realized again, because now I'm involved in uh, directly involved in, in, in veterans in their in their psychology at, at Homeward Bound Adirondacks and campfires I have here on my farm. I, I just realized maybe six months ago, I was telling stories because I wanted someone to tell me. Oh, you did that? Boy, that was good. Because they never told me, and they never told any of the soldiers coming back from Vietnam, oh, my goodness, you, you did something worthwhile. You did something that supported the country. You did your duty. So we, we never were recognized. And again, no matter what your level of education, your sophistication, what you do for a living – we we were all stripped naked and we all were subject to the same stresses. But I, I know you can't believe I didn't dwell on putting a, a young man in a corner. But it's, 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 it's a scale you deal with, you know, what's the cost benefit. Okay. And the nurses would sit with them and they say, I'm going to write my last letter home or am I going to, I'm going to live. Aren't I? And she say, yes. And he quietly would die. And I give the nurses a lot of credit for being able to do that. But honest to God, psychologically, we did not dwell on it. But it did affect us acutely, but we didn't know it. The rest of my conversation with Gus Kapler after a short break. Stick around. On Veterans Day 1996, VVMF unveiled an exact replica of the wall that could be packed into an 18-wheeler and hauled to cities and towns all across America. Since then, the wall that heals has been displayed in nearly 700 communities throughout the nation, spreading the healing legacy of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial to millions of visitors. If you want to know more about this traveling exhibit and the impact it can have on a community, check out episode 15 of this podcast. The Wall That Heals and the Mobile Education Center that travels with it will be in Auburn, New York, September 14 through 17, and Kutztown, Pennsylvania, September 21 through 24. To see the rest of this year's tour schedule and to learn how you can bring the Wall That Heals to your town, visit vvmf.org. Hello, I'm Gary Sinise. Nearly 3 million Americans served in Vietnam and more than 58,000 have their names inscribed on the wall. Those that pay the ultimate price in service to America. Some might ask why the Vietnam War still matters. It matters because more than 58,000 lives were cut short and their families forever changed. It matters because we should never forget how Vietnam veterans were treated when they came home. A lesson learned so that our current generation of veterans 
are treated with respect. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, the organization that built the wall, works to ensure that future generations will understand the war's impact. I'm asking you to help keep the promise the wall was built on. Never forget. Visit vvmf.org to find out how you can get involved. The Registry is an online community created by VVMF that connects veterans of the Vietnam War era with each other. By signing up for the Registry, you can upload and share stories and images, connect with others who served during the Vietnam era, and connect your service with people you knew whose names are now on the wall. Join the community and preserve your legacy or a family members by signing up today at vvmf.org registry. And now back to my conversation with Gus Kapler. Can you describe some of the uh, types of, of wounds or injuries or ailments that you that would deal with, he, whether they were caused by weapons or the environment or whatever, and just give a sense of, uh, you know, the, the, the range of things that you had to, that you had the, to. The, the, uh, the, the uh, VC, Viet Cong, were ingenious, and they collect all our unexploded ordnance, the, the hand grenades, the this, that, and the other thing. And they were experts at booby traps. Now, the worst ones were those booby traps created with explosives. Now, they had punji sticks. They had the logs that would come out of the tree with the spikes on it and all those things. They would take our, our plastic syringes that were discarded and they use a, a trigger, make it into a trigger mechanism. They run a copper wire up through the barrel of the syringe and then put another copper wire on a plunger. When the two copper wires hit, the circuit would be completed and it would trigger an explosive. The majority of our injuries were booby trap injuries. The majority of injuries were blown off legs, uh, blown off arms, mostly legs. Uh, I've got photographs where you can tell that the soldier stepped on a booby trap with a certain foot and the other leg was coming forward because all the blast is in the front of that. But again, it sounds, oh, booby trap, that's not like being shot, but it is because they are also high velocity wounds. And by definition, most people say high velocity is greater than 2,600 feet per second. The, the missile traveling, wherein a shock wave is developed. And there's a shock wave. A shock wave is a compression of the air molecules in front of the missile as it travels through the air. And before the missile even hits, now it's, you know, fractions of a second, that shock wave goes through the tissue, dissociates muscle, uh, muscle uh, molecules and this, that, and the other thing. And then when the missile hits, it the kinetic energy is just explodes the tissue. We're in a hole about 27 times the size of the permanent hole 
develops. And when that hole develops 27 times, it creates a negative pressure. And because of the negative pressure, atmospheric pressure pushes debris into the wound, grass and stones and clothes and what have you. And, and the body's tissue is essentially water. So when that missile hits, a ballistic shock wave develops, okay? The, the, sort of the sound wave shock wave goes through, through first, missile hits, energy is deposited, and then shock waves go through the tissue. And the shock wave, I have a photograph where the bullet did not hit the long bone, the femur in the thigh, but the shock wave fractured it. The shock wave can tear the inside of blood vessels. The shock wave can destroy uh, uh, lung tissue so that it becomes non-functional. So it, it's a major, ma the shock wave is, is the thing that we discuss in TBI, traumatic brain injury. That's the shock wave, the same shock wave we, we, we're talking about. So, and, and muscle is, is with, with fragment wounds of the leg, you would sometimes just fillet the entire leg open and you take forceps and pinch the muscle. If the muscle contracted, it was alive. If it didn't contract, it was dead. So you started to chop it out. And that's where the term meatball surgery comes from. You wind up with a pile of debrided muscle. But with all this open tissue, these patients would get 30, 40, 50, 60 units of blood. After just a couple units of blood, your clotting factors deplete, your platelets deplete, uh, the different things that were used to preserve the blood are in the system. If the anesthesiologist isn't watching things, ours did, but the patient's urinary output can drop, they become acidotic. I, the insult to the body is, is just horrendous with the adrenaline and the cortisol. And, oh, it just, and the, the key thing the anesthesiologist had to do is keep the patient out of irreversible shock, keep his temperature up, keep the urinary output up, what have you. Now, don't you run out of blood? Yeah, we can run out of blood. We had thousands of the 101st across the road, across Highway 1. They come up and line up and stick their arm out. And there's nothing. What's worth more than platinum and gold is what we call fresh walking donor blood. This blood is warm. It's coming right from a live 18-year-old and going in to an 18-year-old that's in the operating room. You mentioned that you have suffered from PTSD. I know that you also have suffered from some Agent Orange-related illnesses. Um, do you want to talk about any of that? Oh, why not? Absolutely. My major problem is that I'm angry. <laughs> not because I had to go to Vietnam. I, I, I'm, I'm proud of that. I, I, I did a... It, 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 not probably. It's the most influential year of my life. It made me a better person. But I'm angry at the slaughter, at the lies, the fabrication. You know, you read Dereliction of Duty. You read Vietnam, the tragic whatever. And, and, and written by two different authors, but the message is the same. 
people were Kennedy loved toys. That's why we had our Agent Orange sprayed all over us. The and and we and the government knew the chemists knew that it caused debilitating disease. And in their naivete, in their naivete, they they said, "Well, we're just going to sp- spray it on the enemy." And if it gets sprayed on our troops, our government will take care of them. Okay. Agent Orange actually was about four or five different colors. The vicious chemical was 245T. And in the production of that, there was a predictable, predictable occurrence of a, a, a byproduct called dioxin. And dioxin is probably the most vicious chemical known to man. It causes birth defects. It causes genetic damage. It can skip generations. It's still in the soil in Vietnam and deformed children are, are still being born. And they sprayed it on us. And they sprayed it on me. They sprayed 54,000 gallons on a Fubai area before I got there. It was in the dust, in the water. Okay. Okay, that's one thing to be angry. But the other anger is allowing these young kids to be slaughtered when they were going to get out of there for no reason. They could have gotten out of there faster. But the thing is, what was at stake was a president's legacy, was a senator's legacy, was a general's legacy. Uh, uh, Too much ego is involved in the people who govern us. It. It, it's sickening, and and this makes me very, very, very angry. Then you take these nice, wholesome young people, turn them into killers, and do nothing, do absolutely nothing to rehabilitate them so they can reintegrate into a peaceful society. You're sent home to sink or swim. We were. And they still are. I talked to them. They still are. And actually, the United States Air Force has a program in Ramstein, Germany, called the Deployment Transition Center. And there they they actually bring to fruition what I've been pushing for. I, I call it a therapeutic timeout. They send... Airmen to Ramstein, Germany, with no record keeping. Why is that important? Because it eliminates the threat of stigmatization. If you're not keeping records, then there's no evidence to use to stigmatize you. Okay? Because stigmatization is is the bane of society in, in the military. Stigmatization keeps everybody in line. Okay? So they can drink what they want. They wander around. They get into groups. They begin to trust. They begin to admit what they saw and did. They realize, I'm not crazy. They're reacting the same way I reacted. And it goes on for a while. They have found over 40% decrease in PTSD 
symptomatology in these airmen and a greater than 30% decrease in substance abuse, cigarette smoking, and other parameters of, of post-traumatic stress. It works. And, you know, at our at Homeward Bound campfires, after the, the veterans who don't know each other before they get there, some do, had spent a day socializing, kayaking, hiking, uh, forest bathing together, developing a trust and trusting me because I'm one of them, they open up. Being in a group is powerful. It's absolutely powerful. And trust is most important. And lack of stigmatization is extremely important. The 85th EVAC Hospital in Fubai uh, was there to serve, I believe, for the most part, the 101st, the Screaming Eagles. Exactly. Yes. yes. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say about those men? They were extraordinary and extraordinary and they were tough and they Christmas Eve we had a huge major uh, mass casualty <coughs> those whose surgeries were delayed were laying on a gurneys with their heads up one had lost a foot one had lost something else and they're smiling and they're joking and they're happy and I finally realized they're happy because their war's over and they're going home alive. Yeah. Maybe without a foot, but they're going home alive. They were tough right. young men. And they loved each other. They were buddies. They took they took care of each other. You took care of the guy next. And 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 we had some Filipinos, we and blacks, Latinos, you know, we played softball, basketball, football, volleyball. You know, it was a melting pot like it like it should have been. You had two children when you left for Vietnam and, you know, I know that you you suffered some when you came back and and how important, you know, how how supportive has your family been? Well, my, Are you still my, married to the same girl. We just had our 60th anniversary. Yeah. How many? 60 years. 60th. Wow. Congratulations. We wouldn't have been together since 1957 we started dating in high school i tried to run away and go to college free but she caught me <laughs> but she robin robin is the driving force of the family you know she she never told me you're different after i came home my mother did it was funny she had a party for me and we arrived and she says, you've changed. And I, I didn't say anything, but no, no one. They thought you went to a country club for a year. They would thought you went on a sabbatical for a year. No one ever thought about what was going on. You know, the, the, the empathy was totally absent. Absent. It was, it was amazing. It was like you didn't exist. That part of your life never existed, and you were it was ignored, and it was it was it was upsetting. But the thing is, with me, I had to be straight. Okay, at, at Fort Carson, Colorado, 
all of us drank a fair amount, but we all realized we we're going to go home. So we're going to start practice pretty soon. Better straighten out. We were a group. You know, we took care of things. I, I had no problems with substance abuse or alcohol when we got home. You know, we got loaded every once in a while like everybody does. But I didn't think I had a problem. But speaking to Robin recently, when she hears me talking to some of these veterans on the phone, she says, oh, my God, you were, <laughs> you were something at times, you know. So it did change, but a lot of times you don't realize you've changed. has been advocating for veterans in one way or another since his discharge in 1972. He also lectures on battlefield trauma and the origins and possible prevention of PTSD, substance abuse, and suicide in active duty military and veterans. His book, Welcome Home from Vietnam, Finally, is available at Amazon and at guscapler.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of service, sacrifice, and healing. See you then.